Welcome to the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour. try and make this as brief as possible because this is a long one but it's totally worth it and as a matter of fact you know I've said a number of things here at the beginning about how I really don't know whether or not this is something I should continue to do and while I really enjoy all the conversations and I feel like there's something that is valuable in this one when I was editing it I thought you know this is totally worth doing. I should really change my attitude. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to do a little uh, announcement of a couple of changes here. I'm just going to keep changing things until I get it right. So um, it's interesting because I, I had announced uh, you know, the update to the Taiji Reality substack and all that kind of thing. And for some reason, that episode, even though there's basically no content in it, has gotten... A lot of listens, which I don't understand. But I guess people like short episodes. So it's too bad because it's really not reflective of what the podcast is about. And I wish I could make these shorter, but I I can't. You know, a conversation has its own natural arc, and you really kind of just have to follow that. So without much further ado, this is a, a joint podcast presentation on both the Assembly Silence and Cryptosophy podcasts. Doyle Baxter, who you may recall was a guest a few episodes ago, invited me to uh, join him for his relaunch of Cryptosophy. And uh, this is truly a fascinating and intense ride. I hope you enjoy it. If you want to help out, it's pretty obvious what to do, but just in case you don't know... You can rate on iTunes. It's awesome if you would say something positive in a comment. Um, It might even be awesome if you say something negative in a comment, because I think just the more comments, the better. It's sort of like there's no such thing as bad publicity, right? And if you want to support it, there's taijireality.substack.com, and there's patreon.com slash taijireality. Or you can send a little something as just a little tip to taijireality at gmail.com on, uh, on PayPal. Or you can just spread the news. And, uh, and I am going to encourage those of you who listen to at least submit your email to the taijireality.substack.com. Because, you know, when you listen to this show you might recognize that some things get said that might upset someone, and I really wouldn't be surprised if someday various platforms decide they just don't want any of this going on anymore. So it would be nice to be able to stay in touch and continue to do this work, even if the the uh, lords of the interwebs decide they uh, they don't like us. You never know. So with... Uh, With that, here is the episode. And we're recording on this end. Perfect, perfect. Well, thanks so much for uh, for making the time to uh, 
do another uh, joint episode of the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour and the Cryptosophy Podcast. Uh, as you know, this will be uh, the inaugural relaunch of my activities on the Cryptosophy Podcast. Uh, just last week, uh, my co-host Max Krieger uploaded the fourth installment of our Specialists series, um, and he interviewed a um, junior college baseball coach. Um, and it was one of the most interesting conversations that you would never think to be interested in. Um, Max has a really wonderful way of of making even uh, making even relatively innocuous sounding jobs um, of existential import, which really is the purpose of, um, of the specialist show. And so it was a, it was a really fantastic relaunch. Um, and I'm, I'm excited for, for this conversation as well, because I think that a lot of the themes that you and I teased out on our first conversation um, on your podcast, a couple of, maybe a couple of weeks ago, a month ago now, um, I think that that will actually really uh, provide a true Kind of foundation, or at least some kind of level of familiarity with each other's views, that we can um, start to actually go deep on some of them. Perfect. Um, so, with that, I will give you just a second to introduce yourself, say hi, tell the world um, who you are and what you're doing. Hello, world. Well, as Doyle mentioned, I have a podcast called the Assembly of Silence Radio Hour, where we have freewheeling discussions on primarily philosophical and spiritual issues, but it's pretty broad ranging. It can dip into politics or occasionally science, really whatever it is that comes up. And uh, it's a, a range of different guests, people in different walks of life, many of whom aren't uh, necessarily geared towards uh, presenting themselves, but uh, some are. And um, and other activities include uh, a number of philosophical concepts that I explore on a YouTube channel called Taiji Reality, T-A-I-J-I-R-E-A-L-I-T-Y, and a Substack, uh, taijireality.substack.com. Most of that kind of focuses on the ancient Chinese symbolic system referred to as the Bagua, which consists of trigrams uh, that are the basis for the I Ching. So it's somewhat esoteric, although a lot of people are familiar with the I Ching at this point. Um, so that, that kind of gives a, a thumbnail sketch of some of the things that I'm interested in. There's a couple other things going on, but that gives you a a sense of what it is. That's perfect. And, you know, when we were texting over the Christmas holiday, um, and I think that this can be sort of the genesis for the conversation today, um, I, in a sort of offhanded way, in wishing you a belated Merry Christmas, uh, said something along the lines of, well, I'm just disappointed that Christ didn't come back. Um, yeah. But Merry Christmas, hopefully this year is, uh, <laughs> is a little bit better. I'd love to just get like the, the, the thought that ran through your head when you read that text message. Well, I guess one thing I was thinking is that a perennial disappointment, or is it this particular year that you felt that there was a good chance that, that you know, the second coming was was about to occur? I think typically it's it's perennial. Every year I get really excited for Christmas, um, and particularly um, particularly really do try to embody the hope of of the second coming. 
But this year in particular just seemed like so apt for it, right? It's like we have all of the things that you would expect in, or potentially would expect in like a, a pre-apocalyptic sort of epoch. Um, there's the the decadence of society, a pandemic, rumors of wars and wars, um, um, political up, uh, de, you know, political up, not uprising is the wrong word, but political upheaval, discord, upheaval is perhaps a better word. Um, and then to top it all off, we had the great conjunction of Saturn and Jupiter mm-hmm. on the 21st of December, mm-hmm. um, which, of course, from a symbolic perspective, is, is a really interesting thing. Every 20 years, um, Jupiter and Saturn get really close in the sky, um, but they have not been this close in the sky since the 1600s. And it's ostensibly the first time in modern human history that it's occurred on the same day as the winter solstice. And the interesting thing that brings together kind of the mythological naming of those planets, the cosmological realities that we're actually witnessing, and then like in the context of a Christianity, is that Saturn and Jupiter represent the two of the generations of the Greek, of the Greek and Roman gods. Yeah. And Christ yeah. is ostensibly the son of God and therefore is the third in this kind of triumvirate, or at least this third of third in line um, of the, of these great, the, the Kings of the gods, right. Starting with Saturn and then his son, Jupiter, and then ostensibly his son, Jesus. Right. Hmm. And so I thought that it would just have been a, an, an intriguing year um, from a poetic justice sort of perspective for the return to actually take place. Uh, is there some other reason why Christmas would be thought of as the time for the arrival? Well, Christmas is celebrated when it is precisely because of the winter solstice. You know, I think biblical scholars are more or less um, more or less aligned in the thinking that based on um, the activities of the shepherds that are described in the gospels, that it's most likely that Christ or that narrative took place in the springtime, not in the dead of winter. And so the question is, well, why do we celebrate Christmas when we do? And I think part of it is Christianity's perhaps unique ability to graft on to the underlying cultural, religious, and other social social things and graft onto them and repurpose them. And so December 25th is simply a, um, it's just a few days off, a few days of a miscalculation essentially of, of what would have been a winter solstice feast um, probably uh, in the Nordic mm-hmm. countries. So it's not only grafting onto uh, to cultural phenomena, but it's grafting onto the actual uh, mechanics of the solar system. Precisely. And and it would make sense that the celebration of the birth of the Savior, who is the light in the darkness, would would emerge on the day that is the darkest day of the year, right? With the with the shortest day of the year is the darkest day of the year. And so it's like some some symbolically, that's when the hero would emerge, the the savior. That's right. Yeah. So it's interesting also that this year this conjunction occurred at the beginning of Aquarius. You know, one of the other things that I am interested in. Uh, which might provoke some interesting conversation is uh, what is commonly called astrology, even though I think that's a terrible term for it. 
And Aquarius has a fascinating set of associations, uh, one of which is uh, interconnectedness, kind of universality, a sense of an understanding that the interactions that are happening are kind of universal in scale and that this is a the creation is a gigantic dance of all these different perspectives and so it's this kind of uh, you could say globalist type of view i think globalist is a is a kind of a, a earthbound way of expressing it and i think it might be more universalist but you know using the word globalist i think has a a resonance with what's happening now politically because well what's been happening here on planet earth with respect to human interaction is increasingly something that is global in nature. And we see that right now with respect to the pandemic and with respect to the way that all of the uh, world's economies are interlaced and how, you know, events in remote parts of the world are having an effect around the entire globe now. And how precisely does Aquarius sort of like mediate over over the universalism or the globalism? Is it he's is he the harbinger of that or somebody that would stand um, in opposition to that? Well, uh, a, a real discussion of this would require uh, an explanation of the signs, which uh, may or may not be something you'd want to do right now. But I think that for the purposes of you know, we could just do this for a moment if you want. I think you'll find it incredibly interesting. So I'll share my screen with you right now so you can actually see the configuration at the time of, and it's a pity that we're not recording the video, but you can see the configuration at, uh, well, this would be on the solstice. So here we have Jupiter and Saturn right here at the beginning of Aquarius. And the way that I talk about you know, because fundamentally, the, the problem that I have with the word astrology is that there's this idea that these signs are somehow associated with the constellations. And, you know, astrology means the study of the stars. But from my point of view, this has nothing to do with the stars. The, the stars were just a way of being able to get a sense of where you were within an annual cycle. Are you seeing what, I'm, what I've got up on the screen? I am seeing it. Yeah, and that's totally true. Right? The, the the constellations are are fixed, so to speak, and it's the planets that move freely among sort yeah. semi-freely among them. And so right here is the the interface that describes the vernal equinox. And this is really where the the astrological chart is defined. So the beginning of Aries is the beginning is the vernal equinox, which is in essence the beginning of a new year, which is why this has to do with new things coming into being. So I'll very quickly run through this so you can get a sense of the overall perspective. When new things come into being, they need to find a solid place to land. So Aries is the new thing coming coming into being. And then the Taurus is like a, a fertile place for this new thing to find rest. It needs to find a foundation where it can germinate. And that's what uh, Gemini is about. And you see it's a split. The twins are joined together. And that's because when something germinates, it's heading in two opposite directions, and yet it's one thing. So a seed, when it germinates, part of it is reaching up towards the sun, part of it is digging down into the earth. It's one thing, but it's doing two very opposite things. And that's the basic engine of life. In order for it to develop, it has to develop a relationship with its environment, which is what cancer is about, which is sort of like nurturing the give and take 
of, uh, of, of a living thing in its environment. And if it's successful at doing that, then it can have a sense of self, a sense of being, which is what Leo is. And from that sense of being, it can work its prerogative in the world around it. Virgo is sort of like organizing and analyzing. So it will try to set things up to serve itself, to serve the thing that it just built and to serve its own sense of self. And if it's capable of setting things up to serve itself, it's then able to come into equilibrium with its environment, which is what Libra's about. And if it's able to find that balance, then it can look beyond itself. So it's sort of like Maslow hierarchy of needs. If you take care of the basics, then you can look beyond the self, which is what Scorpio is about, perceiving the other. And in perceiving the other, you can get a, a deeper sense of understanding, which is what Sagittarius is. And that deeper sense of understanding gives one a better sense of what your purpose is, which is what Capricorn is about. And having fulfilling, uh, fulfilling a sense of purpose gives one a sense of the interconnectedness of all things. All things are trying to fulfill their purpose, which is what Aquarius is. And in that sense of the uh, interconnectedness of all things, one is able to relinquish the self so that something new can come into being. So relinquishing the self is what Pisces is, which is why Christ is associated with Pisces, the Piscean age. And that's what makes way for a new thing to come into being. And so in some ways that provides a really interesting context for uh, the idea of the second coming, because in a certain sense, what's, you know, what's suggested by this way of looking at things is that it is that fundamental self-sacrifice, the understanding that you need to be able to relinquish in order for the new age to come that characterizes, you could say, the Christic embodiment. Is that all make some sense or is that a little too far out there? No, I mean, it's it's definitely making sense to me symbolically too. Um, and sorry, the, the one thing I, I missed there was Aquarius, particularly his role in, in that process again? So Aquarius is sort of like when one has a, a an understanding of things, having a, a appreciated the other, Scorpio, and then deepened your understanding, Sagittarius, then one is uh, able to fulfill your true purpose. And in fulfilling true purpose, you see that, well, this basis of, of this sort of second half of the wheel, uh, the appreciation of the other in Scorpio, that that there are others who are also finding their understanding and developing their sense of purpose. And so you're able to see this kind of dance of all things trying to fulfill their purpose, which is what, I, what I'm saying Aquarius is about. So it's sort of that global universalist view of this crazy dance that has some rather problematic, difficult, horrific aspects to it, but at the same time has these glorious, unbelievably beautiful aspects to it. And you're seeing it all as one gigantic kind of flow of being, if you like. Fascinating. So in, in Aquarius, you actually come to recognize that this cycle is what's being perpetrated by all being outside. And that actually paves the way for the subsequent giving up of oneself and then the subsequent emergence of new life from from that and so there's like a there's a moment of in the in, in aquarius there's a there's a moment of recognition that the other is not so other and therefore i can sacrifice myself for them is that is that kind of what you're saying interesting precisely precisely and that the divine spark is within all of us and that that is eternal and so we don't have to worry about like 
preserving this life, which is short no matter what you do. What we're really doing is, is fulfilling our purpose, regardless of, of whether or not it keeps our particular soul in existence. You know, the, that would be sort of Leo, the Leo concern of maintaining this self. One of the fi- things I find so interesting about this model of, of kind of com- comprehending the universe is that it, and, and I might say something that's out there. And so I might have to backtrack. So just prepping, prepping my potential need to backtrack on the statement, but it seems to me that this is fundamentally not a Western way of looking at the world, but rather it's something precisely, pre- precisely other than that. And I think that insofar as we call it the second coming of Christ and not necessarily the, the re-coming of Christ or something like that, it's actually a signal that there was something that was once and now it is again and it won't be forever and perhaps a rejection of the cyclical nature of things. Um, to develop that thought a little bit further, I think specifically, um, specifically one of the things that I'm thinking about is the relationship between the second coming, our sort of notions of eschatology and sort of the ethics that are built on hope of this second coming. It's like, there's an acknowledgement of what will be is not today. And it's as an object of hope that I can construct a life around what could be tomorrow and live Mm. today as if Mm. that tomorrow will come. That, that seems to me, um, to be a little bit different than, than this conception of, of the universe. Cause this would say already that this cycle is, is evidenced in nature. And my job is to kind of enter in to this, to the, in, in, almost to, for the self to disappear into nature, as opposed to what I would con- construe as the fundamentally Western position as the self's um, almost attempted negation at nature itself and its attempt and the individual's need or kind of existential desire to distance itself and to make a self of itself rather than recede into the quasi nothingness that is all being. Yeah. I, I don't think that that's necessarily implied by this system. I would say that one way of looking at this is the development of the individual self into the, you might say divine self or something which is aligned with the divine self in some way or another. So that the emergence of the, of the greater sense of self is the fundamental feature of it. And the attachment to the particulars of the material world are, are lessened as you kind of gain understanding and see, you know, perceive the, the reality of the natural world, which is in some way something you're leaving behind at towards the end of the cycle. Well, which you are definitely leaving behind at the end of the cycle. But I would say that, you know, from an Aquarian sensibility, you're actually sort of standing back from the pageantry of it all and, you know, perhaps appreciating it, perhaps also to some extent lessening your ties to it, having a sense of, well, I've played my role and and I will see it to its fulfillment, uh, but ultimately I will have to uh, relinquish my position so that something new can come into being. 
Yeah, certainly. Interesting. So to, so to bring us back a little bit to specifically the notions of the second coming, um, as, as almost like a, as a, as an impetus towards like an ethical life, I'm curious, um, you know, even insofar as, um, you know, we pray for the second coming in the Our Father every time we pray it, thy kingdom come. We might not know that that's what we're really praying right. for, right. but it's there embedded in a prayer that's, you know, perhaps whispered by billions of people around the world every day. On earth. On earth. Yeah, indeed. On earth as it is in heaven. So that sort of describes the eschatology, doesn't it? I mean, that is, you know, that is the goal, ideally, right? Precisely, in that it's it's not something that is, it's not so far off that we can't conceptualize it already in the same, the way that we already live and move and have our being in the world. It's, it's the, it's precisely that life set free from all of the negative consequences that happen um, to seem to be necessary for life to exist. You know, Joseph Campbell talks about one of the first things that life notices once its eyes open is that life is a very tragic thing because for life to continue to propagate, it has to kill and eat other life. And so right. one right. of the, you know, one of the promises of, of a second coming of thy kingdom come is precisely all of the, the miracles and joys of life without what are today, it's necessary tragic elements and the, the killing and the eating of other life. So the lion will lie down with the lamb, right? Precisely, precisely. So uh, an, another kind of thing that I have been thinking about in relation to into the second coming, um, and this is going to seem really far out there, but um, I think it might be an interesting prompt for a conversation. Um, you know, it seems to me that of of all of the political ideologies that we've seen recently, um, the Marxists actually seem to have the best understanding of what the second coming could be like. And that seems like a very interesting, a very interesting statement given the atheistic alignment of Marxism by, by necessity. But even the use of the, like, even the use of the word like eschatological Marxism um, is, is a thing, huh. right? And so um, I, have a, I have some thoughts around like why it could be the case um, that the Marxists understand better than everybody else um, what the second coming could mean. Great, let's hear it. Um, but I, but I, want to, I want to caveat this with my particular, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm both reaching the ends of my erudition, things that I've studied, and the ends of my ability to like think and imagine. So it's like I'm truly at the, ba the boundary line of things that, I, things that I know that I know or things that I don't know that I don't know. Um, so I'll just preface that with this. I don't know if you're familiar with a thinker by the name of Alain Badiou. He is a French um, thinker, a materialist, and he wrote, he's, uh, he's still alive today, in fact, 
Um, he wrote the first of his great magnum magnum opuses in 1988. And the title of the book was oh. called Being and Event. And Badiou is a really interesting character because he is um he's a self-avowed Maoist. Wow. Um, and I'm gonna I'm just gonna say I don't know the difference between real Maoism and real Marxism. So I'm just gonna plead some ignorance there. But one of the things that Badiou's philosophy does, he does two things critically at the outset of, of his philosophy that are fascinating. The first is that he declares that, that the study of being qua being, right, ontology itself, is nothing more than the mathematics of set theory, um, which is huh. to say that he's Cartesian at a fundamental level, all being can be described in mathematical language. Being does not contain mystery. Being precisely the opposite is the pure inconsistent multiple that can be described um, with the language of set theory, which allows for various kinds of infinities that are bigger than infinity itself. The second thing that he does is he withdraws philosophy from the task of truth-making. And he says rather <laughs> that truth-making is embedded within four truth procedures that are not philosophical. And those four truth procedures are politics, science, art, and love. Huh. And then he kind of setting that stage defines truth in a way that is precisely not ontological. It's not the same thing that, that you describe with the mathematics of set theory. In fact, truth is something that can't be described by ontology. Truth is something of a non-being because there's something undecidable about truth because where truth really emerges is the happening of, a, of an event and then the fidelity of the subjects that are witness to that event, staying faithful to it across time. So that all sounds abstract. What he's really done is he's taken the notion of the revolution as kind of an abstract concept, the political revolution, and he's turned it into this thing called an event and determined that what truth is, is the it's, it's the same kind of thing that happens when the revolutionary army forgets not the thing that set them on their revolt and actually instantiated a new situation in history. What happens though at this point, once you have truths that are not ontological, but rather the result of fidelity of subjects to events, I think you actually come to understand something really interesting about Christianity. And Badiou points this out himself. He says that, that St. Paul is precisely the first person to understand the militant nature of truth. Precisely not the, like, it's not about erudition or study or uh, logical investigation. Truth is the decision of the subject to remain faithful to an event. And an, an event that perhaps that subject didn't even didn't even necessarily witness, right? As a, as a Christian, I was not there when Christ was walking on the earth. I did not hear him preach. I did not see him die on the cross or rise from the dead. 
Um, and yet it's the fidelity to this event that actually reconstitutes truths by which I can build a new situation, which is like my life. And so Badu is precisely not your traditional dialectical materialist or your democratic materialist because he has this more robust notion of the event, um, which is not, again, it's not ontological. It's, it's like an emergence in history. And it allows him to, to like not lose the, the eschatological hope of all communists, right? Which is essentially the coming of the kingdom. Right. And right. so as a result, um, I find that Badiou's like the way that he thinks about reality and especially when you think about events that are not precisely political ones, like if you abstract event from revolution and then start to think through, um, think through all of history in the, in terms of what bad of Badiou's notion of the event, it actually turns out to be perhaps one of the, most accurate descriptors of the way that history actually unfolds in reality. And so mm-hmm. I can't help but feel a little bit convinced that his understanding of the nature of things underneath is right in some sense. Well, it's interesting. So you're outlining a way of thinking that I'm not that familiar with. So we may have to kind of go over it a few times in order to really discuss it. Um, it strikes me that, in essence, what is what he's doing is he's saying that that truth is a decision that's made by each individual on the basis of some particular event, and that it's not a, a inherent property of any given aspect of being that that seems to me problematic because although we may not be able to discern what the truth is of being there is some fundamental truth to being itself and you can think of that in a in a uh, how would we say? You could think of that as being both an artifact of consciousness and uh, of the phenomena that consciousness observes, because clearly things are happening in a particular way. So you can say that there are there are true statements that can be made about what it is that's occurring. And you know, I think when you come to the sciences, perhaps is the domain within which that's the most apparent. Uh, we're we're you're making an effort in science to figure out, well, yes, there is a definite thing occurring. And what is the truth of that phenomena? Can we come up with some way of being able to get close to describe? And when you say describe, you're not actually like grasping the thing being described. So you can posit that there is an actual truth about the things that are occurring, even though our descriptions are always going to be kind of dancing around it. So I have some problems with that way of formulating things if I'm understanding it correctly, because I think that there is a truth to the way phenomena uh, occurs. And there is also a truth to the nature of being, which is the, the thing, uh, the spirit within us. Those are, there are truths, real truths there. And it's not just a matter of making a decision about a particular event. So I would argue with it. 
Does that, am I making an argument that makes sense in relation to that? Cause I'm not sure if I caught all of it. You are, you are. And I think, I think that this is, this is fundamentally the point where if you're gonna, if you're gonna disagree with, with Badiou and some of his successors and heirs, you have to win this argument about the nature of being because once, once being, or shall we say, once the study of being is mathematical, then it's no long, it's something that is now transparent to human thought entirely because it's human thought that's capable of, um, of, of generating a, a, a language with which to describe all of reality in its, in its fullness, even in its complexity. And that's the, and that's the key thing. It's the, we don't necessarily need to go into all of the details of like transfinite math that lives in set theory and thus is like kind of embedded in Bedu's philosophy, but essentially it allows for the rigorous and comprehensive study of things that are so massive that infinity is not even big enough to, to, to pull them together, right? They are transfinite. They are bigger than infinite. Sorry, sorry to interrupt, but just briefly, uh, there's an interesting documentary that I think is called something along the lines of uh, uh, dangerous ideas, something along the, I'll have to look it up, but in essence, it traces the history of the concept of infinity and talks about some of the key uh, mathematical minds who work with these ideas. And I think in three out of four cases, they all went mad thinking about it, like literally drove themselves nuts. Um, so infinity is a, is a highly, uh, speculative problematic. I mean, you know, mathematics, yes, they're, it's an incredible, uh, capacity within humanity to find a description descriptive language that's so rigorous and yet at the same time it's really not entirely clear that mathematical formulations are in any way tied to ontological reality i mean there are some which seem to do a pretty decent job but on the other hand there's an awful lot of mathematical conceptualizing that we don't have a lot of evidence as to whether or not there is a uh, a, a real referent in in either phenomena or being. So, you know, my sense of it is that the the lack is always going to be on the part of our effort to describe. And so, I guess I would disagree to some extent with what you just said because it seems to me that while we have achieved some remarkable things in our ability to tease out an understanding of things, that that understanding is always fundamentally limited and that we're constantly kind of bumping up against the various inconsistencies in our, in our models. And, you know, we can tinker with them and fine tune them, but my sense is that as we do so, some of the assumptions that we made at the beginning are going to uh, cause uh, the system to fundamentally be irrelevant as the universe goes on changing. So I, I don't know that we can ever really get a grasp on it, but I don't think that that's a reason to say that there is no 
actual truth to the phenomenological or world of being. So that's really, it's really, it's intriguing that this is, this is the line of objection you're taking to the underlying philosophy because the, because Badiou would reply with something like the emergence of transfinite math, namely by the work of Georg Cantor was itself an event that I, as a subject, as a philosopher (laughs) have cast my, cast my fidelity to. Right. And so it's, it's right. great. Cantor, Cantor was one of the guys who drove himself nuts thinking about infinities. Exactly. Yeah, he is. He is. And, but his, his import on Western philosophy, at least since Badiou's writing about him in 1988 and since then um, has been pretty remarkable because it's, it seems to me that there isn't a better way of, of reconciling what I would, what I would consult, would, uh, would otherwise call unreconcilable differences between what Marxism slash communism slash Maoism actually, you know, says, and then the things that it does, right? Because in, in doing this, Badiou has actually found a way to remain a Maoist or a communist to reconcile the unreconcilable in 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 communism in marxism which is namely that every time it's ever been tried it's resulted in you know tra- you know horror on the scale that you can't even really imagine right like you can't really imagine what tens of millions of dead people means or hundreds of millions of dead people means right and what he what he seems to have you know found is at the heart of it a way of um a way of dealing with a way of dealing with the uh, apparently un, you know unjustifiable notions of of the death and the suffering and all of these things with a true something to be hoped for an eschaton that is actually justif- justifying for all of the the pain and suffering that leads upon lead, leads up to it well th- this gets to an incredibly difficult issue that I guess we really have to discuss because you have this, you know, the wheat and the chaff notion that that there's the threshing floor and that at some point or another, there is this separation between, you know, those who are, uh, are fit for, let's say the kingdom of heaven and those who are not. And then the fundamental question is really whether or not the ones who are fit for heaven remain here on earth or not, you know, one way of viewing it is that uh, in these crucial moments, the the right will prevail and continue here to exist on planet Earth. And another way of viewing it is, well, actually, no. In some ways, maybe Christ was telling us quite the opposite: that you don't live for this planet. What you live is for something far higher, a greater ideal. And that the ones who who depart are the ones who are preserving what is good, while those who remain are going to fight out for the scraps remaining, and uh, and and suffer these horrible episodes of history. Now, you know, I don't I don't know that I believe one way or the other. I think both of them are 
plausible. We, we would like to believe that the righteous would prevail here on earth. But it does seem that, you know, while you could, you can uh, perhaps find a philosophical way to justify the horrors of uh, the Stalinist and Maoist periods, uh, and certainly, you know, we can't just lay all of that on the communists. There have been plenty of horrors committed by really all ideologies. I mean, I think the problematic is is kind of laid out right there. It's certainly possible that life on Earth is a proving ground where on some fundamental level, we're being asked to accept that this is not the the prime issue, that that just material existence is insufficient to a good life. And that, you know, ideally, one would be able to integrate a spiritual being with physical presence. But in some ways, you could say that one of the things that St. Paul really highlights is the incredible difficulty that occurs when you're trying to realize that marriage. Right. Right. Well, and, and it, 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 we, you know, it kind of goes without saying too, like that there's a fundamental ascent of faith of some kind, whether it's the kind of faith that Bedu talks about in the fidelity to the event, or just the, the ascent that like, the tragic nature of existence and the eventual redemption of the righteous is something that's worth happening. Right. You could like, you could take a, a, what you might call like a cynical view of things that it's like, why would I even care to participate in an eternal life that rewards me for my righteousness? If the price for that in some sense is the senseless horror and death of of life itself. Right. And I think that even there, like there's at some point there has to be a decision that grounds any sort of, any, any sort of ethics or any, yeah, any sort of ethics that would be built upon some notion of hope, whether it's like the eschatological Marxist hope or the salvific hope of Christianity um, or yet, or yet something else. To, to what extent could we say that there, the eschatological hope of the communist impulse has in any way been realized? It hasn't. That's the thing, right? So, I mean, you can justify this for a vision. I mean, how many horrors have happened in the name of some concept of utopia? You know, this is, I think, hubris, really. The, the idea that, that we can bring heaven on earth it's no, it's, I mean, to some extent, perhaps we can get out of the way by stop trying to create it. That would be my, my sense of it. We could get out of the way of, of God's purpose by stop trying to, to assert our own idea because we're not the creators, you know, we are the transformers. <laughs> you know, my sense is that originally we were here to be the caretakers and somewhere along the way, we, we forgot and and developed a, a sense of, uh, you know, probably because we became so uh, infatuated with survival. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do quite often. 
And so incredibly difficult things are done in order to maintain a presence in this world. And that creates some tough characters with, you know, and you could say in some ways, the, a lot of the ideas of the warrior, it's a mixed bag, you know, that, that we can prevail we can assert ourselves in the world and we can make this world into what we want it to be. So the exercising of power, the aggregation of power in human hands is something which is just profoundly dangerous. And yet at the same time, it's completely understandable. I mean, this is basically what's required in order to uh, compete with the civilizations that have embraced power and, and asserting power. So, on a certain level, we don't really have a choice if we're going to be a participant here on earth. But again, it comes back to this thing of, you know, living for the kingdom of heaven and not for the things of this earth. That's what we're being asked to do on some fundamental level. But it's incredibly painful, uh, you know, very difficult. It's, it's no wonder that even back in the day, they were having such a, a hard time trying to find the way. How do we live by these truths, right, that this event revealed to us? Is that a fair way of kind of tying it together? Precisely, precisely. Well, and, it, and, it's, and it's that fundamental question that I think lives at the heart, the heart of everything. You know, I, because I've read it so many times and love it so much, I have a, an annoying way of tying everything back to the Iliad. But I think in this case, like it's actually it's actually originary in that, you know, what Achilles decides in in the Iliad and, and so does Hector and the rest of them is that immortality in recognition, in honor is actually better than than living a long, peaceful life where nobody remembers you. And, and this, and this is why I think, this is, I think why when we were talking about the star sign stuff earlier, I, I, I asked the question of like, yeah, but is this like, is this, what, is this the, 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 the mode of understanding that actually lives at sort of like the originary root of Western culture? Cause it would seem to me that actually it's the decision that Achilles and Hector and the rest of these folks make this tragic, horrible, awful decision that like, yeah, I'm going to die. And like all my family is going to get killed and, you know, my city of Troy is going to get raised to the ground. But guess what? You know, several thousand years from now, there will be some guys having a podcast and they're going to say the glorious name of Hector aloud. Right. In, in a, and, so, and so this is what I want to make sure that I don't know that I was clear earlier is that I'm not justifying the Marxist position. I actually find it abhorrent. However, I think that it's, it's, it's almost a logical necessity if you view the originary founding of the West in the literature of the Iliad, because like that, that the essence of humanity that's part that's shown there is seems to, to find its logical the willingness to do terrible deeds. Exactly. <laughs> the willingness to do terrible deeds under the, let's say, I'm trying to find a word that doesn't quite shade it the way I normally would. The willingness to do terrible deeds under the uh, transfiction of a particular event. So, you know, a particular truth that's derived from a particular event, something along those lines. Yeah, yeah, and that's it. And I, and I think that 
what 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 this means is is I don't know exactly what it means, right? Like I said, I'm sort of at the end of both my erudition and my thinking. <laughs> I, I think we we are way out on the on the ledge here. It's it's an interesting place to be because it's like there's so much to come to terms with, uh, and at the same time, you feel like I'm really not sure where we are or what. But I, as far as the Western tradition goes, I would say that if you think about the Song of Solomon, uh, you know, all is vanity. There's there is a Western tradition that does transcend the concept of this terrible deeds must be done for noble purposes. Right. And there is also, I think, integrated into that, you know, the concept of hubris is huge. And it, I think it's kind of ignored in some respects. We tend to uh, lionize these great heroic figures without understanding that quite often they were lessons in the consequences. You know, you have Icarus, you have Prometheus, both of which were reaching for something beyond themselves in a grand sense and out of some noble sense of purpose. And yet at the same time, tragedy befell them. And so, you know, where is humility in all of this? That was considered one of the great Christian virtues, right? And, and Christ himself, at the time of his life, was a, a very humble person. At the same time, he had greatness on a, on a, in a way that transcended the greatness of uh, Caesar. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, uh, so there's a real dialectic here within humanity of, of these two perspectives on what is the great life, what is the true life of purpose. You know, and I would advocate, I think just because it's rarely advocated for, you know, it's not as if there isn't a part of me that appreciates this heroic sense of, of purpose, but I would advocate for this uh, humble sense of purpose as being perhaps far greater and that it is actually elementally part of the Western tradition. And and parenthetically, the the system that I showed you is is more affiliated with the Western tradition of so-called astrology than, you know, there are other systems that are, there are a lot of uh, overlaps, but they're that are more definitely associated with, for instance, the, the Chinese system is actually quite different and the Vedic system is related, but different. It actually is more, might more reasonably be called astrology because they do sidereal calculations, which actually do align with the stars. But, you know, the, the Western system, which is sort of what this is referred to as the tropical uh, projection, I think is what they call it, the tropical horoscope, is based on, on Earth patterns, as far as I, and that's how I see it, at least. And, and it is pretty much part of the Western tradition. So there is kind of an esoteric uh, adjunct to the Western tradition that I think um, embraces a lot of these ideas. I think you hit the nail on the head when you use the word dialectic, like with almost, it's almost like there's a dialectic within the, the root of the human spirit. And there's two choices and it's the two choices that you just outlined. It's there's the will to power, which is, you know, more or less like a good sum, summary umbrella term for everything that we've just discussed with regards to all the way back to the Greek heroes that were fighting at Troy, all the way up to, you know, the the deeds of the revolutionary army and the establishment of the communist state, right? Like all of that falls on the one side. And then on the other side is this almost like will to self-negation, which is absolutely 
present in Christ to the point of the accept the free acceptance of death, right? I would characterize that a little differently because I think that um, when when Christ is talking about uh, I and the Father are one, it's really not self-abnegation. It's recognition of the divine self. Uh, you know, there is a, a um, throughout the ancient world, a thread of thinking that that basically says that we are all the same self, that that there that God is fundamentally, uh, Patanjali calls it the universal yet particular indweller. So you can say that on some fundamental level, from that perspective, the individual self is the illusion. And, and the reality is that kind of Aquarian sensibility that this is all God interacting within one grand self. And, and so you're not really abnegating the self. You're actually connecting to the great self, the capital S self, instead of being trapped in your own uh, individual isolated sense of being. Actually, there's a greater way of putting it because existence is a word that actually means outside of self. So to exist is to not be connected with the self, to feel separate from the great self, to feel separate from the father, right? And, and being, which is ist, you know, is that ground that is connected to the 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 totality to the eternal if you like this is precisely it this is precisely it what i used when i what i called the will to power as that umbrella term is is perhaps it's better it's the will to instance right whether that's existence or <laughs> resistance or persistence or subsistence um uh-huh it's it's, abs- it's absolutely well it's 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 yeah it's 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 not precisely a will to being which is what I would say you're characterizing as the not self abnegation, but like affirmation of a different, a different notion of self Mm -hmm. that sits at the heart of the human person and presents us with this dialectic, this two, these two options of the way to live one's life, you know, kind of, you know, exemplified on perhaps, um, you know, the two extremes, like on, on the one hand, you have like the Cincinnatus character of, of Roman history who, is called forth to be the great dictator to save the state. And then after he does so, he goes back to his farm to tend to his corn and donkeys, right? Uh, And then on the other hand is, you know, the Caesar character who does the same thing is, you know, to save the state from itself is made the great dictator and makes his reign a dictatorship for life and brings the crashing down of the Republic into, you know, what is essentially becomes Caesar's empire um, for the rest of Roman history. Right. And does so on the basis of a, of a kind of populism. And does so on the basis of a kind of pop- populism. Absolutely. Caesar was the people's man. Yeah. That's fascinating. So the que- so here's the, que- here's the question for me. I think, I think that we are, we're, we're very close to uncovering some really interesting things. You know, one of the things that I have always read into 
the Nicene Creed, the Christian Creed, the that's our our symbol. It's the definition of a Christian. If you don't proclaim this creed out loud, by definition, you're not a Christian. Um, and hmm. one of its its ending lines is, "I believe in the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come." And I've always been very intrigued by the relationship between this affirmation, this ascent, and what I would call a truism in Christianity, which is that God does not help those who do not help themselves, right? It is, it is not a Christian notion that to get a good grade on a test, I should pray for a good grade on the test. Rather, if I want God to help me get a good grade on the test, I should pray that I study well and then go study. And then I get the test. And then I get to take the test and get a good grade. And so I have been playing with, and I think it's been for a couple of years now, really since I met the ideas of Badiou and, and one of his successors, whose name is Mayasu, I've been thinking about the relationship between this the will to existence sort of root of humanity that seems to go all the way back to, to the time of, of, you know, the literature of Homer and this notion, this, this affirmation in the creed that that is the future to which we, that the, 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 the future that we believe in and then trying to figure out how does that fit in with this notion of, well, God doesn't help those that help themselves. And so is the eschaton and the 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 arrival of the kingdom where all of the dead are risen together and live in an eternal world of justice is that something that you wait around for or is that something that you actually have to work for in order for the advent of that world to be worthwhile right. that's fascinating subtlety there yeah exactly and so this is where i'm I want to agree with you that the answer is to choose the way of the capital S self. But I also can't, yes. I, want, I want that to be the answer. But with respect to the things I've just discussed, I can't see how the more of the will to power side is actually how you get to the final object of the hope of Christianity. It seems that the defining line is wherever hubris begins. So to the extent that one is involved in the project with the sense of the small S self, the individual self as the subject of grandeur, that seems like the slippery slope to hell. Whereas if one is able to uh, participate in the world and maintain the sense of God as being the the real self and and that the true purpose is to fulfill the will of heaven not to fulfill caesar's will well maybe that would be a way of delineating uh the the favored approach and so the the so that's really interesting because what now it seems to be the case is that the actions that both sides take are the same and what matters is actually the motivations I don't think that the motivations could produce the same actions. I think that the actions will degenerate on the basis of hubris. 
Okay, interesting. So the will to existence pursued to its logical ends gives us the strong man who is the God on earth and the God of our supposedly eschatological state, right? That's your Stalin. And right. because that's actually what's at the root of the motivations. And so even though they are, they are aiming in the same direction, the net net result of it is actually it's, it's they're, they're not even comparable because the, on the one hand you have the communist state with a dictator. And on the other hand, you actually maybe, maybe, achieve it by making by making the strong man not a man but by making him god you actually achieve the the ends that the communist state was trying to get at in the first place well we have another terrible truth to consider here which is the idea that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely so it's easy to speculate here uh, on what the noble man might do placed in a given circumstance, but it does seem that the, the tendency that's extraordinarily difficult to resist is that, uh, that, that corruption will overtake one once you're in the position to start doing things on that level. So that's another kind of fly in the ointment, if you like. It's almost, it's, it's almost like we we're, we're doomed to a Sisyphean, how, how do you say that? Sisyphean or Sisyphean game? I think it's, yeah, I think it's Sisyphean, but I don't really know. Yeah, where we're just rolling this stone up. And at the end, well, but that's the thing. And, that, and, and this is what I think <laughs> maybe makes makes Christianity so unique is that it's, it's claimed that, no, 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 the guy, he was here. He was, he was actually, he actually came. His name was Jesus. He was right. born in, in Palestine in, you know, the year zero, and he's going to come back. Well, note the nature of his, of his time here. You know, at no point did he assume the reins of power. He was tempted by the devil to be given that, right? So he could have ascended to Caesar's throne, but he didn't. And there, and thereby would have probably been the same as Stalin at, at, on the throne. On some level, because, you know, the office is what determines the, the person in many respects. So it, it's, it's, you know, the question that arises is, can it be different at some point? And there's no doubt that conditions here on earth are changing. And what may have in the past seemed to be a fait accompli, something that would just naturally result from a given political circumstance or something like that may no longer be the case because the, the level of uh, technological power and control and the degree to which it's changing not only human life, but just, you know, the face of the planet, really. Uh, this is... This is going to be a, a, a radical transformation. And I'm not saying that the, the fundamental dynamics aren't going to on some level remain the same, but there may be ways in which, you know, for instance, the, the people who are running these tech platforms, 
they really, in many respects, are the masters of the world right now. And, and they've gotten there not by killing people. <laughs> you know, so, so it hasn't required the same kind of brutality and uh, heroic action. It's required a kind of uh, ruthless intelligence. And we can imagine that, that things will play out somewhat differently now if, if these are the people who are running the show. Now, that's not to say that uh, there isn't hubris involved there, but it's of a slightly different nature than, than someone like Stalin. Hopefully, it will remain of a different nature. <laughs> we will find out. Well, if we're going to build an ethics of hope, we should hope for that thing. <laughs> well, the one the one thing that's wonderful about the the tech world is that it it really um, does thrive on a kind of playful, innovative approach, and and it has a kind of um, how shall we put it in its development. There's um, a continual search for something new and uh, a, a, an effort at a deeper understanding of not only the systems, but the people who are interacting with the systems. And so it seems that uh, if you're going to study something, uh, understanding and innovation is better than uh, the kind of ruthless uh, political machinations and and military operations that characterized power in the past. I think that the political dimension of it is becoming rather ruthless with respect to the text. But so far, not as much blood has been shed. So it, maybe that is a somewhat of a harbinger of the world to come, for better or worse. One of the things that just strikes me as as a reality at this point is that re regardless of the way that it manifests itself, it seems to me that a, a real sort of politics of egalitarianism doesn't seem very tenable because even in, you know, kind of liberalism with a, with a small L that runs the West today, there is fundamentally, it's really, it's, it's, it's not democracy at all. It's like, it is an oligarchy and it's, it, it is on its face. Like that is the benefit of it is that it's an oligarchy that we have this sort of bureaucratic engine that's able to deal with the running of the state um, at a level that's so high that we get all of the, all of the relishes of a global society at all times. And like, no matter what bananas are always in season um, as a result of that. And so there's a lot to recommend it. Um, but it seems to me that it's fundamentally dishonest because it like runs on this platform of egalitarianism. Well, I think it's been said that basically that, that all systems of government are oligarchies really when it comes down to it that, and always have been. I think that there's kind of an obvious truth to that. So yeah, you know, the, the democratic system here is obviously broken. I think even the Greeks recognized that democracy was not an ideal form of governance. 
And, um, and, you know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, but part of this does have to do with people believing what they need to believe in order to feel that they're part of a society that's worth being a part of. And quite often, whatever the ideology is that people are believing, it, it's not really all that well connected to reality. And in some sense, that's necessary because reality is incredibly complex and difficult to navigate. And you just can't expect everyone to think things all the way through and come up with a rigorous perspective and debate all the fine points and do all this kind of thing uh, and have them going about day-to-day -day business and getting stuff done and, and feeling like they're part of a common endeavor. So every society does need to have some kind of a narrative that it, that it embraces. And quite often, it really just isn't related to the reality of what's going on seems that seems like a, a truth as well i think what i'm what i'm questioning what i'm questioning is it doesn't seem strange to me that the notion of like a common wheel or a commonwealth is somewhat universal across time like it's the, the the government is in some sense the people's thing it's the 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 property that is held in common to all men but i think what i'm what i'm getting at is that we believe at least on the surface, we say we believe that society is a commonwealth and that sovereignty is in the is in the the thing, the people to whom the thing is common, right? And I think what I'm I, I kind of would I, I would be more comfortable with a system that is acknowledging that yeah, the the, the city and the government is a it's the people's thing. It's a republic. And in some sense, the government does serve um, the people fundamentally. However, that doesn't mean that that's where the sovereignty comes from. And I think this is one of the things that makes me more willing than perhaps other people that sh otherwise share my political views to, you know, more or less have, you know, an allowance for what I would call a monarchy or even other forms of more their authoritarian forms right. of government. Which in some respects gets back to the, the communist project because, you know, in essence, communism is a narrative that results in totalitarianism. You know, it's fundamentally an authoritarian structure. It's just that its path to power is on the basis of a utopian ideal of a worker's paradise. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly, uh, exactly. And so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is that I don't believe that the notions of what, and so I, so, so I'll, I'll clarify my position. I believe that society is a Republic. It's the people's thing. And the, the government serves at the pleasure of the people, so to speak, but I'm less inclined to say that sovereignty is properly situated there because I think I think along with the Greeks that I fear the mob way more than I fear a tyrant. Because a tyrant who's several thousand miles away from me in the capital can only do so much to me, but the mob lives next to me. Right. And so I think that there's a more, there's a more fundamental willingness for me to to sketch out a Republican form of government that, that has a king or a leader or a something at the top of it. 
Well, I think that unfortunately it's a little more complex than that because, you know, if the if the sovereign doesn't recognize the uh, the commons as their uh, their protectorate, what they're supposed to be responsible for, then they can utilize the the commons. Uh, or let's say the masses, perhaps is a better term. They can utilize the masses for whatever purposes they want. And I, I think in some respects, what we're seeing now is that the oligarchy has has essentially abandoned any most pretenses of caring about the masses and that they are inclined to turn the masses against each other in a variety of different ways and to mobilize the mob you know that that is the sense that i get quite often when i see what's happening nowadays so unfortunately you know we get back to that you know power corrupts and, and an ideal system would be one that is where governance is of the people for the people and of course we would recognize that when someone assumes power they're they're now in some way separate from the people. So you have this unavoidable line in any kind of a political uh, system between those who are governed and those who are governing. But I think once you get to the point where there's so much power and influence in the governors that uh, the will of the people is no longer really considered worth much it's basically the bread and circuses phase of political deterioration where the people are are handed representations of actual sustenance you know the real brick and mortar aspect of day-to-day -day life is in many places in in this country and around the world crumbling which is you know Every civilization has its day. They all have a lifespan. And so the question is, how do we transition? Because there's definitely going to be a transition happening here. They're calling it the Great Reset, right? So it's something that's already been defined. And we've been hearing about it for years. For a while, they called it the New World Order. There's a, there's a variety of different ideas about who are behind it and whether or not it's well coordinated and all that kind of stuff but clearly there is you know even from our position of not having all that in uh, inside information it's pretty clear that we are at an inflection point yes what i'm not certain about is which inflection point are we at because mm. while the transition from the republic to the empire was pretty scary for everybody that lived in the city of rome it was pretty chill for everyone else in the empire. And the outcome was actually quite good for everyone else in the empire. In fact, Rome, the city, became less tyrannical over the, over the provinces once the, once the imperial age began. And so it was actually quite good. Like the, the, the Pax Romana and then all of the this, the decentralization of power that, that occurs in the provinces after the the rise of Augustus. It's like that's if you were if you had to pick a century to live in that wasn't the twenty first, you would probably pick <laughs> the second, right? Like after a hundred years of imperial rule 
um, like it's actually not so bad. Yeah, I mean, you had that great infrastructure without the without the oppression. Precisely. And so my what I'm what I'm concerned about or what I don't know the answer to and what I fear is that we are not at the inflection point of of the republic to the empire, but rather we're at the end of the empire and the barbarians are at the gates and potentially what is what follows is not a couple hundred years of imperial glory, but a couple hundred years of dark age. Right. Uh, I, I share that concern. Uh, I, I guess, you know, if it's true that we're living in new Babylon, then the prophetic tradition suggests that the fate of, of Babylon is, is not good. And I think there's an awful lot of evidence to suggest that, that um, the Anglo-American empire follows the, the Babylonian pattern pretty closely. Then if we're, if we're closer to the fall of the empire, what was the moment in our history that was the transition from the Republic to the empire? Hmm. Well, I think probably some of it had to do with uh, going off the gold standard, the, the federal establishment of the Federal Reserve, where the government wasn't able to print its own money. Um, and uh, I think also when the United States became basically the global police post-World War II, that began the long decline in our domestic affairs. Yeah. Yeah. I would, I would, I would, I would have to agree there. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, obviously what's, what's next for us, you know, I mean, luckily at the end of, at the fall of the Roman empire, you had somebody like an Augustine that was able to lay the, you know, cognitive to, to borrow some, to, to borrow some words from John Verbeke you know, Augustine was able to lay the foundation and a cultural cognitive grammar for a new culture after the mm. fall of the Roman Empire. And, mm. and I would say that, like, what's interesting is that it takes a while, but it takes a long while. But some of the governments that emerge in post-imperial Europe I would say are closest to what I would point to is like, if I had to pick ideal forms of government, it's like, if I can't pick the Roman empire, which is probably number one, it's like, well, 12th century France under the, uh, under, under the rule of St. Louis was, was pretty good too. Um, mm. If not from like a quality of life standpoint, at least from like a, the theoretical structures of the, of the polis and the kingdom and the city, like all working together um, in a harmonious sort of, um, sort of way like that 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 proper balance between you know the the kingdom is the property of the king the kingdom is also the public thing and the king serves at the pleasure of the people and the role of the king is to protect the rights of the nobles and then the rights of and the, the job of the nobles is to protect the rights of its uh, of its citizenry right and so it's a, mm -hmm. you, you actually get like in 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 the aftermath some pretty remarkable societies that emerge. And I guess, and maybe it's too early to tell, but it's like, do we all do, do the thinking ones of us, the ones that are kind of sort of publicly out there. And like, we have thoughts that people are interested in. Do we 
you know, what role do we play in, in this kind of, this liminal space between somewhere between the Roman empire and, you know, the idealized form of, of the, the, the kingdom of France that I've just sketched out. Like, what is our job here? Like, what's the call of duty? I think probably it would be to see to what extent we could come to agreement on the wide range of issues at hand, you know, to really sort of codify on some level, which would be an absolutely uh, Herculean task. You know, it's one thing to discuss, but it's another thing to come up with essentially a constitutional foundation, you know, a, a, a creed, if you like, a, a way of going forth that we could abide by. Because fundamentally, the thing that that makes a society strong is the degree to which there's an agreement that people have a, a common sense of purpose, a common sense of identity. And, you know, it's no coincidence that identity and it has been diced and sliced in so many different ways in this country uh, around the world, but, you know, focused a lot here. And I, I'm concerned that it's going to be very difficult for any region to uh, develop enough of a common sense of purpose and identity to uh, keep its shit together. But it seems like that would be the task at hand. It's, yeah, I mean, it's like the task at hand really is like a second Magna Carta, which sketches out just like in writing, like, hey, these are the rights of the people and the nobles and don't mess with the city of London and stuff, right? It was just like a, it was a tacit agreement. Yeah, it's something that would have to fit within the umbrella of of the present system, whatever it's going to be. You know, I, I think that my 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 gut feeling and and concern is that we're going to see some rewriting of some of the basic laws of this country over the next decade and it's not necessarily going to be a good thing but um i would say that uh, a group that was interested in finding a way through this uh liminal period let's say kind of through the dark ages would have to come to peace with whatever the, the empire is doing and at the same time have its own uh, framework for coexisting and cooperating. And interestingly, I, I wonder if, and I, and I, I want to use this word, but I, I don't want to mean it in its traditional sense. It's almost like what needs to be cultivated is a healthy sense of nationalism. Um of like the thing that actually belongs to the people. Well, that would be ideal, but you know, nation, the, the extent to which it could be national in scope, I think is, you know, that might be too ambitious. You know, I, th I think that at this point, our nation is just way too divided to, uh, to, to get to the point where you could have even 10%. I'm just sort of pulling that number out of nowhere, but even 10%, actually agreeing to <laughs> to some basic kind of document you know yeah i think this would be uh, uh, a small voluntary group i mean i think in some ways the real model is like the mennonites and the amish hmm. you know not specifically those models but that they are a functional group that operates within this system that holds together on the basis of their common understanding, common belief, and sense of purpose. 
And not to say that those are the particular uh, systems that one would want to put together, but I think ideally would have to kind of fulfill those those functions. And I think that that scale is appropriate, given the the confusion and complexity of this kind of Babylonian reality. Yeah, precisely. When I use the word nationalism, I, I really, I almost mean it more sort of like in the European sense, but subtract all of the things that we don't like about European nationalism in the 21st century. Like, mm. like, I mean, like the, 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 in, you know, some sense of like Brittany and it's not, and itself as a nation apart from France or Corsica and its sense as a nation is apart from France or the Basque region of Spain. Yeah. But look at that. Cause it's, you know, those are the kinds of the Basque region, for instance, is still a somewhat contested area. And it's not, you know, they have maintained a degree of independence, but they've never really managed to gain full independence. And so I think defining it in national terms creates a, a problem that doesn't necessarily need to be there because it does appear to be, at least for the time being, that the trend is towards greater consolidation and making an example of groups that are trying to uh, be separatists. You know, look at what China's been doing. It's always a question of whether or not you're going to get increased balkanization or increased homogenization, whether, whether they're going to be able to exert power that way or not. I mean, it seems pretty obvious that fundamentally these large, let's say, corporate-sponsored nation states are going to have way more power than any kind of an independence movement would have right you know and unless there's an interest in any in an independence movement being a proxy for one of these larger entities you're not going to have it and if you do end up being a proxy for that then what an ugly situation it's 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 far better if at all possible i think to to define a relatively humble community that has a common sense of purpose and and uh common understanding. I think fundamentally religiously structured is always the best way. And that in this period of, of I mean, there really is incredible aggregation of wealth and power. You know, you can't underestimate it. And really, we don't even know what they've got going on, because I'll bet most of the of the high level technology, whatever it is, is at, at the cutting edge, we don't even know what it is. So the capabilities, if you're going to make like some sort of a a play on the global stage and and you're not um, backed by that kind of power, then it's pointless. And so my sense is that something far more humble would be have a far, far greater chance of, of maintaining its integrity. Let's put it that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, th I think this, this discussion that we're having is so interesting framed in like how we got here earlier talking about the second coming and, um, and the word document that I, that I send, sent you at the beginning of the call. Cause like it actually, like, it's almost like, it's almost like this, this conversation was scripted and we're, we're coming to it, but, um, it wasn't, and it's just emerging. You know, one of the things that is so interesting to me is the relationship between, well, what nation in however loosely you want to define that and people or folk and however loosely you want to define that. You know, I think originally nation was defined as common language, which is fascinating if you think of it in Babylonian terms, right? Because mm -hmm. the whole thing about Babel is that people can't understand each other anymore. Not a nation. Yeah. So it has to do with finding common language. Yeah. And I, and I think that's right. And I, and I think that there's something that really is really interesting that happens in our 
sensibilities of the relationship between like the, the life that we're living today and like the future life in the eschaton. Um, there's a really interesting little thing that happens over the course of, of history phenomenon, I guess, um, that happens. There, there's a, there's a song obviously in Christianity. And I would assume that almost everybody's heard it. It's called O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's, it's an ancient song. In fact, it's not even really clear when it emerges. Um, it's perhaps a thousand years old, at least in its infancy. Um, and what's so fascinating about O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is that in the 1870s, um, there are two stanzas that essentially get added um, to this song. And the two things that get added um, are interesting because the structure of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel is that each stanza um, after the first stanza, which is O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, is a reference to something that is almost fundamentally Jewish in its, na- in its nature. Um, come, thou rod of Jesse, come, thou dayspring from on high. Come, thou key of David, come, O Adonai, or the Lord. And there's like a fundamental sort of, with the, the, if you kind of intuit, do a little bit of psychology, psychologization on like the creators of this song, it's like they fundamentally do see themselves as remnant Israel, that the second coming is, the second coming is to us as the first coming was to the Jews. And you can't think them apart. And so as a result, there is a very national flavor in Christianity that lives in just the, the stanzas that get picked for O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it should be noted that this, the first line of each stanza is actually being pulled from a far older um, tradition of antiphons that are preceded, uh, that are used in various prayers, uh, liturgical prayers in Christianity, but not in very intentionally in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. Not all of them are chosen. We don't pick all seven of the O antiphons. We pick just five of them. And then what happens in the 1870s is perhaps some universalist tendency or, hey, we forgot about those two or something like that. We pull in hmm. the others and we add two stanzas to the end of, of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And it's come thou wisdom and come hmm desire of nations, bind all peoples in one heart and mind, bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease, fill the whole world with heaven's peace. And essentially what I see happening here is in the 1870s, at perhaps the last period of the decadence of the West before a great fall, there's this inherent recognition that the individual nations have either gone too far or ceased to be the individual nations that they are. And they've, their, their, their differences have in some sense led to a sameness that can only end in strife, that can only end in total world war. And so Right. right at the moment when the nationalism of Europe is coming to its height, we in, we input this, the the last of the O antiphons there at the end. And, and I don't know if I mean this as a criticism or as a 
as a, oh my goodness, like look at this, the wisdom here that's, that's done in this, in this fundamental act. It's like the same thing that would lead us to an embrace of nationalism is also going to lead us to a need for a desire of nations who can bind all peoples in one heart and mind. It's like in individualization, right. we need something universal. And um, I don't know precisely, you know, how to live that. Like, I don't know what do we do today to either, like, what's needed? Do we need two more stanzas to our Okomokomi Manual? <laughs> or do we need, at this point, do we need to strip out the two that were added? Well, let's put it this way. In 1878, did, the, did those two stanzas prevent what was coming from happening? <laughs> No, they did. They did not. So yeah, I imagine that poetry will be limited in its uh, in its effect today as well, particularly because no one reads it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's right. Hopefully, God still hears it. Amen. Well, uh, you know, there's one other thing that I wanted to mention when it comes to the second coming. That's kind of it's a very bizarre point of view that's outlined by Philip K. Dick in his book, Valis, which uh, I, I don't even know if I recommend reading it, but I would recommend reading the end of it that has uh, what is referred to as Crypticus Scriptura. It's like a, a set of short statements um, that are referred to throughout the body of the, of the novel and uh, provided in their entirety at the end. And it's a book that's very much concerned with the logos. And uh, it envisions, it's kind of a, there's a fair amount of Gnosticism mixed into it, but it's a fascinating distillation of history as this dialectic between the, you could say Emmanuel, who is a, a representation of the uh, the one who receives the logos, and the I think he refers to it as the uh, iron prison, which is a representation of the um, of the power of the state of the empire, and that the. The irony is that while the the empire is always attempting to bring everything under its fold, what it ultimately ends up doing is dividing everyone up and creating a lot of antagonism. And that the the receiver of the logos is one who would actually seek to unify people, but is uh, but is seen as being an enemy of the state because. It um, undermines the authority and power of the state. And so you could view history as being essentially a dialectic between those two forces that have happened throughout out time. And, and Jesus, of course, being the uh, perhaps ultimate realization of that dialectic through history. And so the, the story of the second coming is that this this would be the final battle between the the state and the logos, if you like, 
I think that uh, in some respects, I think that's a, a wonderful way of viewing it. I, I tend to see it in those terms. And I think fundamentally, the way to think of it is that this is the will of God, that God will find that moment. And what are we to do in the meantime? Well, love God with all our hearts and minds, because we're just children. There's so much we don't understand. Amen to that. Amen to that. Because I think, I think, and you know, this, this, this kind of puts the bow on everything that we've been saying is that, you know, there, we are children. We are in, in some sense, the Christ story is our story. The, the helpless infant born in the barn. Um, that's who we are. And despite that, um, despite that, there is something yet to hope for. And it's, it's quite amazing that once you have a proper orientation to the objects of your hope, you can live any life, no matter what circumstance uh, it happens to throw at you. Yeah. And it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Those old cliches are really beautiful at times when you think about it. Like we were talking about the, the winter solstice. You know, that's that kind of, yeah, the moment where, you know, you're going to make it through another winter. A lot of it has to do with perspective. And I think hope and faith are are what really carry us through these times and that our actions are, to a large extent, uh, irrelevant. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't study for the test. <laughs> well, correct, correct, correct. The hope is actually something that makes the that makes the day-to-day bearable, right? Absolutely, yeah. Like if you, if the object of your hope is is su- is such that like all of this will be redeemed, well it's like well there's still all of this to attend to then, right? Right, exactly. And therefore the 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 hope which is the true hope is the one that that permeates and gives new life to every moment of the day despite its monotony um and actually gives us something to live for as opposed to um as opposed to you know like lesser lesser forms of hope that would only give us something to aspire to at the denigration of of life itself and so i think to 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 really to take this all to all the way back to what you were discussing about the the fundamental humility that lives at the on one side of the human dialectic between the will to existence and the, and the will to self with a capital S um, that hope is actually the way that you get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nicely said. Because there's an acknowledgement that, that, that I am not the fulfillment of, I'm not the fulfillment of the hope. Somebody else must be. Right. But that doesn't mean that I can't play my role in, in what is to come. Precisely. I have to play my role. I have to attend to the little things. Yes. Or else the object of hope won't arrive. The advent won't happen or it won't be genuine or it won't have the intended effect of actually saving us from ourselves. Well, we're all participants in this grand uh, Aquarian dance and we have to play our part. That we do. That we do. Well, well, goodness, Noah, I don't know that I can, you know, artificially try to tie a, tie a concluding bow in that conversation um, any more aptly than the two of us just have done. So here, here, oh. that was a, that was an incredible, 
(laughs) an incredible journey in a saga through a bunch of different, um, you know, tangents that all I think do lead us and, and anybody who's listening to this to like something that's actually, despite any, despite any darkness, like there's a lot to, there's a lot to look forward to. And there's like a, there's a work to do. Um, it's to embody that hope to live it. And, uh, Thanks so much for for participating in this conversation and and helping to to tease out that little hidden wisdom that seems to be at the heart of the heart of it. <laughs> Absolutely. It was my great pleasure, Doyle, and I look forward to our next conversation whenever it may occur. Thanks for listening. We look forward to serving you again soon. In the meantime, remember, turn that thing over a few times before you pick it up and take it home.